Hello and welcome to the Reinforced Running Podcast. My name is Rich Ryan. I will be your host. Today we have Callie Schweikart back for the second time for the show and this time we do a deep dive about the difference in training between men and women. And this is a very valuable conversation for both athletes and coaches and it's something that needs to be spoken about a little bit more openly and freely. So that's exactly what we do. We just really dive into it. And it was an awesome conversation. We talk about some of the nutrition needs that differ from female athletes to male athletes, uh, the signals of red S and what exactly that means, and also how to train with the fluctuations of the menstrual cycle. And we really talk about some of Callie's own personal journey with this. And and it was fantastic. I learned a ton from this. So I, I think you'll definitely enjoy it. So before we get into that, just some quick housekeeping, just a reminder, Reinforced Running is now on YouTube, so check it out, subscribe, and get some videos and on training and racing strategies, and currently, I'm personally documenting all of my training that's leading into DecaFit and High Rocks in these next couple months, so I'm giving you the exact workouts that I'm doing, uh, the reasons that I'm doing them, plus some programming and movement tips, and you know, I like them, so I don't know, you should probably like them too, so I'll link to that in the show notes below if you want to check that out, you should, and also, you can see some quick hits from the Reinforced Running Podcast. So, for example, if you loved the episode with Ian Hosick last week talking about running and biomechanics, but you might not want to sink all your time back into another podcast, uh, the same podcast episode, because there's a lot of podcasts to listen to. I know you got stuff to do, and you got you to gotta check them all off. I get it. But you can go back, and there's a 16-minute video that details all the important pieces that Ian touches on in that in that episode, so you can make sure that you can revisit that information that is so valuable and really kind of put it into practice. So take a look at that. And also, at the end of this episode, we're going to try something a little bit different here, and I'm just going to talk about a specific piece of training that's been on my mind, and this is something that I wanted to try out for a while, um, and just to see if it's going to be helpful for you. So I'd love some feedback on that. So today I'm going to talk a little bit about how you can learn from cryptocurrency and how it can help you with your training long term. So stick around and hear about that. That's what we call a tease. All right, we have Callie Schweikart back on the show. Callie, what's going on? Hey, Rich. Thanks for having me back on. Um, I'm excited to talk again. It's been a while. It has. And I'm, I'm thrilled. I want to like, like my impulse is to talk about the, the race that you just had. We'll, 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 we'll touch on that at the end because it seemed awesome. Like sure. the, man, the whole Montana deal seemed like a really cool thing, but we can digress um, like real deep on something like that. But <laughs> We have a cool topic that I really want to kind of dive into. So I'm thrilled to have you on again. I was really impressed with your knowledge as a coach and the last time you were on. And I'm really excited to kind of dive into this topic because I believe it's uh, it's something that's really important and it's kind of tough tough to grasp, at least in my own experience. And the the concept is fairly straightforward and intuitive, right? Like women and men, like biologically speaking, um, there are differences there. And like, so training them there, there, there should be nuance and, and differences in how it's all presented. But what, what seems to be frustrating is that the information isn't necessarily readily available in terms of scientific studies. And most of those are done on men and particularly like college aged men. And, and that just seems to be like, from a logistical standpoint, it's just easier to recruit that type of demographic, right? So the information that we have that the evidence-based community wants to like glom onto is all skewed to toward one specific person. And so and in, in definitely like in this endurance field and athletic and athletics in general, there's just not a ton of 
information on, on the actual differences. So, so with that, like, why, why is the idea of training women differently than training men, not as like mainstream as it should be? That's a good question. Cause I, you're right. It's kind of, um, it makes sense to treat them differently, treat men and women differently when there are so many differences. And I think, um, in a sense, there are, um, some, you know, general tips or kind of, uh, misunderstandings that are out there based on like differences between women and men, but it's not the right information. For example, I was thinking about how, um, women are kind of led to believe that, their portion sizes should always be smaller or something like that. Like, so people address those differences a little bit, but it's not necessarily the accurate information. Um, I think just like with things like uh, diet culture and like society, um, like standards and kind of beauty expectations, um, body expectations, things like that. um, It's made it really hard to separate the, um, all that kind of junk (laughs) from the actual science of it. And like you said, um, women aren't prioritized in research either. And I think it's tough because of the hormonal fluctuations that they have. It makes mm. it so difficult to standardize a uh, research study. Unlike men, it's a little more um, stable. So um, it's difficult, but it's necessary. <laughs> you know, like we, we need more information on it. And do you think it's just like the, like, yeah, you're totally right. The hormones will make the information that's received a little bit harder to interpret. So you think it's just a matter of having some larger scope of a study that needs to be done. And really like, I want to dive into the nutrition part first, but what, if there was a study, if you had to, if you got all the funding, they just gave it to you, Oh boy. what, where would you start? Like what kind of things, if you had a long-term study, I don't know, however long-term study is 10 years or something like that. And you wanted to really kind of get down to the nitty gritty of the pieces that are, that are going to be make the biggest bang for your buck when it comes to training men versus women, where do you think you would start? That's a really good question. I haven't thought about this one, but I think that I'd really want to dig into um, probably differences in metabolism, which has kind of been studied a little bit, but if you had the time to like, if you could span 10 years and follow men versus women and kind of study, um, and I, I wanted to get into this and I think we will too, just kind of study how um, the female body reacts to different fuel sources or different um, nutrient timing versus men. Um, there's one um, important difference that, yeah, I definitely want to touch on um, that they've already studied a little bit in depth, but I think just all those differences and how they play into shifts in female hormones versus do they affect men the same way? I think that's, that would be really important to address because hormones in general are so, um, they're so, uh, influential in performance. So if they're not working right, um, performance isn't going to be where you want it to be or where it could be. Um, so anything addressing that would be really cool to see more in depth. I'm actually not convinced that we know everything about hormones in general. I feel like there's like that you are still learning about how the things kind of interact with each other. And we might not even be close yet. And I might just be talking. <laughs> I might just not have any idea what I'm saying, but like the, it seems like things are even with the hunger hormones, those are newer that we've been kind of learning about with uh, ghrelin and what's the other one? Um, leptin. Leptin and ghrelin. Those are, those are things that we're just starting to really kind of discover. So like, yeah. I, there's probably more that, that we're going to come across down the road. 
So, but, but why don't we start here in the nutrition piece anyway, and talking about the different fuel sources, some of the, the, some of the things that have been, been studied as of yet. So when, how does that work? Like, wh- what do you mean when you mean the different fuel sources and how they're, they're kind of metabolized between the, the two different sexes? Yeah. So, um, well, the, I'll, I'll, uh, give a little disclaimer that most of what I learned here, um, has been through the dietitian that I've been working with for, um, a year and a few months now, plus, um, some of the studies I did in school, but, um, it's been a pretty eye-opening um, journey to kind of learn so much more about this. And the main difference that, um, really plays a role in, um, female hormones that I've kind of, uh, had to learn and had to adjust my own nutrition and training because of it is, um, fasted training is, uh, that's something that could be detrimental to uh, a woman, a woman's health, whereas males can react really well to it. Um, so I, I listen to so many different podcasts. Uh, I, l- I love yours. There are so many, there are so many different ones out there, but, um, facet training is always a topic when it comes to endurance sports. And I think, uh, we're starting to catch on that it's different for women because, um, in the past it was like, oh yeah, you'll become fat adapted. Um, you'll become more efficient at burning that fat as fuel. You won't need the carbs. Um, and that is true to an extent, mainly for males. Um, but in females, it's been shown, um, in the minimal research that they've done on this, um, that it can really wreck, um, your hormones. Uh, females do not react as well to it usually. And, um, the, the deficits that are created from training in a fasted state, uh, often create consequences that much outweigh any, um, potential benefit you would get from being fat adapted, which was something that kind of blew my mind at first. And isn't this theory, the theory of this is drawn back to hunter gatherer kind of, right? Like if, if right. there was a shortage of food supply and the men were going out to hunt, like becoming leaner and kind of tapping into those fat stores is what is going to help them kind of sustain for longer. And I cannot recall what the explanation was for the transverse that happens, but there is more of a storage that ha- for the women that happens, right? Yeah. So, um, well, it's, it just seems that women are much more sensitive to deficits. So, um, like caloric deficits is what I mean. And, mm-hmm. um, may, a lot of, there are theories about it, but, um, a lot of it stems from the idea that, um, with like childbearing and things like that, if their body can't, isn't getting enough energy to support itself, how could they, um, re- reproduce, which is, um, you know, biologically kind of a, <laughs> a female's quote unquote purpose. Um, so, and, the deficits just create that, um, stress on the body that, um, males have kind of evolved to adapt better to, or so it seems. Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing that was fascinating that I found was that, um, that, well, that I found fascinating. I didn't find this research. Um, like I didn't (laughs) conduct these studies, but, um, was that within day deficits. So, um, we talked about how, like, if a female fasts before training, then they complete their training and they're in that, deficit from expending those calories, they can eat some of it back, but if they're still in a deficit, um, throughout the day and then make up those calories throughout with their diet by the end of the day, that within day deficit that they carry throughout the day, even though it's evened out later, um, can still have a negative effect on their hormones and their cycle and things like that. So they could overall be balancing out, like say they burned like random number, 3000 calories in a day. And by the end of the day, they ended up eating those 3000 calories. If they ate primarily at night, 
and expended most of their energy throughout the day, then they're in a deficit for most of the day. And that's a stress on the body that has been shown to um, negatively affect their, um, their hormones, which is crazy. That is crazy. Cause yeah. they, they talk about that window, right? The window, uh, post-workout window. And, and a lot of mm-hmm. that research is kind of derived from muscle protein synthesis. So like how to build muscle, that's like from the bodybuilding world. And that's yeah. kind of been debunked in terms of building muscle that you're, if you, as long as you're meeting your protein numbers and, and putting yourself at a caloric equilibrium or a surplus, like you'll, you'll build muscle like in the long term. but the hormone part is really interesting. What is, do you know specifically like why, like what's happening? Yeah. Well, I probably can't go into as much detail as someone who's, you know, done all this <laughs> research, but, um, my understanding, cause I was doing a lot of this research for my own purposes, just trying to figure some things out, um, that I was going through. And, uh, it just didn't make sense to me that you have everyone saying, Oh, calories in calories out. Like that, if you balance that, then weight stays stable. Um, like you said, if you, if you eat in a surplus, then no matter what times you eat, doesn't matter. You're going to build muscle, maybe something like that. Um, that isn't necessarily the case and there's not enough information on there uh, on it out there yet. I feel like so to kind of debunk the idea that, um, calories in calories out is the only thing that matters, but yeah, from my understanding, it's like putting your body through mini starvations a little bit. Um, so for instance, if I were to go out and train and, uh, not consume anything beforehand, I went to bed, uh, say at 10 PM, my last meal was at 7 PM that night before I get up and train without having consumed anything. I'm kind of already in a deficit because my body worked through most of the calories I consumed the day prior, like through sleep. And then once I train, um, if it's an endurance training session, it's going to burn a considerate amount of calories, um, a a considerable number of calories, I should say. Mm. And um, then it's just kind of upping that deficit. And the body is just like, whoa, I, I can't really handle this. You're not giving me any input, but you're making me go through all this output. And, um, things like cortisol goes through the roof stress hormone, because it's just like the body trying to like get through the day here. Um, and then it can also screw up your, like we talked about leptin and ghrelin, um, hunger hormones, uh, that can all get out of whack because you're not giving your body, the fuel at the proper times. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just kind of, from what it sounds like to me, it's back to that idea that women don't do as well with those, with any sort of like starvation period, any sort of deficit that's stressing their body out too much. Whereas men can kind of handle it a little better. It's really interesting that it is as reactive as it would be, Mm. that it would be so quick. Like the in-day deficit is something that I hadn't necessarily thought of because I do always kind of think of it in terms of, you know, week over week, you know, that your long-term energy, uh, equilibrium or whatever that, that, that looks like. So the in day is really interesting because this is, this is exactly where things kind of get crossed, right? Like what is good for what has been found in studies? Like, you know, there, like I said, there might not be this anabolic window that you need to hit, but the info, but that's only for the information is available for like one specific type of person. So having mm-hmm. that in-day deficit is wild. So like where, so from there, is that the importance 
of so eating after is incredibly important then. Yeah. Oh right. yeah. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll speak from a personal standpoint. Um, I, before kind of getting more into endurance sports, I was uh, following that idea, kind of the calories in calories out idea, um, tracking macros, kind of just working out to stay in shape um, after college sports. And um, I got into a really bad habit of kind of like, quote unquote, saving up calories for later in the day. So I could enjoy like those more indulgent foods that I wanted um, because it was within my numbers or my macros. And um, from my understanding, everything was copacetic. Like it, it was going to work. Um, I was burning this amount or so I thought and like eating this amount. And that's great. As long as I'm fueling, that's good. Um, but what I didn't understand was um, the stress on my system throughout the day. Cause I, I usually train in the morning. So I would be doing these long training sessions and not feeling throughout the day and thinking I'd be um, doing right by my body to just eat it all later. Um, mm -hmm. It's just, it, it doesn't, your body doesn't utilize the fuel as well as it could. And um, like, I was just stressing myself out constantly throughout the day. So it's, I've learned a lot about how, even if I'm getting up early to train, like I always make it a priority to consume something um, just because I don't want that excess of stress hormone. I don't want my hunger hormones getting out of whack because that just makes things worse later in the day. I'll be starving all the time. Um, so it's a matter of getting something in usually balanced. Like um, for me, it's like banana, peanut butter. And then I love coffee with a lot of milk. So I'll have like a very milky coffee, which you get some carbs and protein from that. Um, but then afterwards, again, it is not waiting too long to eat after, which is another thing that I would do. And then, uh, no matter what I ate, I'd be starving throughout the rest of the day. If I end up eating, you know, 30 minutes to an hour after any training session, um, it satisfies that hunger. It helps my muscles recover. It helps my body just kind of be like, okay, we've got that fuel to recover from what we just did versus gosh, when is she going to feed us? You know, like, mm -hmm. um, cause that's, I feel like that's a lot, what a lot of people do. They, um, they kind of save up and they, they're, they're waiting for like dinner or dessert or something. And, um, they don't realize that their body does, they, it can kind of differentiate, um, versus just like, you know, eating it all at one time. Yeah. It's more fun that way. It's more fun to have a big fun <laughs> meal. It is fun for sure. And so it sounds like with this transition that you've made in terms of making sure that you have a consistent amount of fuel that's coming in throughout the day. And you had other times where that might not have been the case necessarily. How could you pinpoint the difference in the feeling between the two? Uh, if someone's kind of going through this, because I'm sure as you were doing the things like hitting your targets uh, at the end of the day, I'm sure you were feeling you're in that moment, you're probably feeling fine. Like when you look back at it, has it changed? Like, what did it feel like then versus now? Uh, that's yeah. So you're right in that when I was doing it, I thought everything was great. Um, but reflecting, um, then versus now. Um, so one red flag should have been that I wasn't getting period, um, mm. for like eight years, um, which is a, a considerable amount of time. Um, and it just, it, you know, when I started, getting into training more, um, intensely for soccer. Um, I got the idea in my head that, okay, maybe I should try and lose a little weight, you know, lean up, um, lean out or whatever. Um, and I got into super high intensity workouts and was doing that thing where, okay, I cut my calories, but I can still kind of feel satisfied if 
I go really hungry throughout the day. And then I eat like a quote unquote normal dinner. And that just felt fine. Um, but things shifted really pretty quickly where, um, I lost my period and didn't get it back for quite a long time. Um, and then other things I was feeling during that time that I didn't necessarily think were not great, but now knowing how I feel now, it definitely was off, um, was just like, like an insatiable hunger throughout the day. Um, mm. and a brain fog. Those were the two things, um, especially right after training. So I would go into a training session, pretty much fasted and like make it through and, um, get home and eat a little something, but still just no matter what I ate, it was like, I could eat five times that amount. I could go cr crush a pizza, anything like, so it was just constantly feeling hungry until I could have like that huge dinner. I was just like holding out for that. Um, which is a sucky way to live your life day to day. Um, and then along with that came like brain fog. I would like, mm. after that post-workout meal, I would just want to go to sleep. I would feel, I remember being in, um, like some college classes where I'd train and then go back to class after some sort of meal. And I'd be like falling asleep in class, which is not me. Um, I'm like a very, I love school. I loved being a student and I typically have a lot of energy. So, um, those things were like, something was off. Um, now like making those changes and fueling beforehand, first of all, you feel more energetic for the session. You're not starting your session being like, gosh, I can't wait to eat. Um, but, and then fueling after, um, with a proper balance of like carbs, proteins, fats, and fiber is also very important. I found for me, like in my hunger levels, um, I just have so much more energy throughout the day. I'm not hitting that like 2 PM. Like I want to fall asleep. And, um, I was able to, once I started working with my dietitian and making these changes, I did get my cycle back about a year ago after eight years. So that's the huge thing. Um, that's like your most obvious sign, I guess. Um, right. Yeah. And that's, that's when you will hear and kind of be that, that red flag, but I'm sure mm. in those moments, it's like, Oh man, like it's probably hard to kind of come forward with it. Right. And like to yeah. and wanting to, to change anything. Right. Totally. So you don't want to think anything is like wrong. Yeah. And I, um, I would, I took the attitude of like, Oh, well, it's not a big deal. Like I'm young, whatever I had it, I can get it back. Um, and when I would go to, when I would go to, um, like my doctor for checkups, there are a lot of, um, OBGYNs out there who are under the impression that, um, like female athletes, it's, it's normal to like lose your cycle. And, um, I had a pretty, like, she was a great person and a nice doctor, but she was older. And so the science, she hadn't been exposed to much of the science on the consequences of something like that. So whenever I would go to for checkups, she would draw my blood work and, you know, things would be on the low side of normal or something like that. And she'd be like, Oh, you're fine. You're just active. So whenever you were not active anymore, it should come back to normal. I'm like, oh, okay, that sounds good. Um, but <laughs> they're finding more and more that that's not the case that, um, any time spent without, um, those like functioning hormones, there's, there's going to be negative effects from it. Yeah. And that's tough where it's, mm the, the, the personal experience of what that doctor had seen is like, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes it happens. Yeah. I don't really know what to tell you. And, <laughs> and this kind of is been, there's a terminology around this now, what used to be called what the female athlete triad is now yep. is now red S is this, yeah. how, is, and are these specifically, and could you kind of go into what that means exactly? And like what that term is, because it is something that I feel is 
there's awareness around, but what it is and like how it comes about, I think is kind of important to clarify. Yeah. So, um, the female athlete triad was like the original model to, um, identify like issues with fueling potentially disordered eating. It was, um, a lack of a cycle, um, and, uh, low bone density and then like under fueling or like poor eating habits, things like that, I believe. Um, but they've expanded the model, um, to, uh, kind of make it less female centered because there are men who suffer from like, um, red S, which is relative energy, energy deficiency in sport, where you're just not consuming adequate energy. And then your body is going to, um, experience the consequences of that, whether it's hormonally or, um, well through the hormones that can affect your bones and, um, uh, your hunger cues, your energy, everything like that. So, um, yeah, that's, that's like the main, that's what people use to kind of get awareness out there and kind of like, kind of lump it all together as, um, something that's going on in the body. It's more inclusive. So the boys brought it, brought us in. Yeah. It's nice. Yeah. Um, and, but with the, it sounds like it's when it's just this gigantic caloric deficit over time, essentially. Right. And I mean, it's put in the terms in sports because of the available energy that is needed and might not be replenished. And what, where do you think the line is here? Because there is certainly something to be said, and like kind of touched on it before in terms of uh, societal pressures or just what we consider as normal or uh, in, in terms of just the expectations of how one is supposed to look. But then there is also how much energy is being expended as an athlete. And just like a lack of awareness there and really figuring out like what is necessary and how you should kind of feel during that. So what's your take on that? What do you think, what do you think the most important thing is to address in terms of helping people with red S or just kind of when to know it's out or like when to know what to do about it? Yeah. Um, that's a good question too. Uh, I would say from like my personal experience, the big thing that helped me, um, understand kind of what my body might actually need versus what I thought or what I was told it would need was to, um, be around other high level athletes who have kind of a healthy approach to food. So, um, in a, in a sense, I think getting into OCR really helped me overcome a lot of the issues I had because I was able to meet and kind of become friends with, um, the athletes I look up to, like, um, two people who come to mind who, um, I've been able to spend some time with and, um, know have like very healthy and wholesome and holistic eating habits are, um, uh, Ryan Atkins and Lindsay Webster actually. So, um, in spending time with people like them who really don't think too much about, um, how much they need to put into their body, they're kind of just listening to like how they feel, what sounds good and prioritizing like good fuel sources. Um, seeing that coming from the belief that like everything had to be monitored, tracked, um, you couldn't have junk, quote unquote, um, things like that. Uh, I think that's so important. Like, it's really just, um, when, when you can't see other people doing the right thing, you're, you're not going to learn for yourself what the right thing is. So, um, yeah, just following others example in that regard and like looking to successful people in whatever sport you're in. So for me, it was, um, obstacle course racing, um, just looking to people who have maintained 
like good health, like injury wise, are they, are they chronically injured or are they healthy? Um, are they, um, are like energy wise, do they seem like they're, you know, upbeat and like enjoying life and things like that? Like overall, are they taking a healthy approach to everything? And, um, following their lead was something that really helped me for sure. And when I, when I was observing how they did things, I noticed like, oh yeah, like this feels like a good solid portion size of like, say, um, yogurt with granola and berries. It's not like, you know, on the label, it says like a third of a cup of granola is a serving and like, who's, who's going to feel full on that? You know, um, I certainly am not. So to know that like, that's not, um, a steadfast rule, like everyone is individual. I've always had a huge appetite and I've always required a good amount of calories to, um, to fuel my training, to fuel my body. So learning that over time and kind of accepting that and knowing like, it's okay to eat more than you might think, um, is so important. And it's, so it sounds like you're leaning more into what is called more intuitive eating, right? Like learning the signals of hunger and kind of dialing in there, but it's not that easy. And like when you said, like, when you were like, Oh, find an example of a high level athlete who has good habits. I like almost laughed. I'm like, yeah, good luck. (laughs) But it's hard. It's hard. And, but so like the, the tracking piece, I think is a really good step to start that with the end in mind of having that intuitive eating of learning those signals of it's like, Oh, where am I today in terms of the workout that I did and, and the food and how am I feeling around that? And like learning those signals, like you said, for you, it's like, do you still get like that brain fog? Like say if you're on a day where you might not be, or a big workout day, what are your signals that you need to eat more? Yeah. So the brain fog would definitely be one of them. If I, if I, um, Cause sometimes you can, you can refuel after a workout, but if it's a, if it's a long, hard one, or you've just been training hard for a prolonged period of time, um, you still just might be hungrier. So, yeah. um, for instance, on a long run day, um, I could eat what I normally have after workout, but hunger might just come back faster. Um, and if I've gotten to like my next meal time and I notice I'm like really dragging and like really ready to like eat something I know, then probably I should have fueled better beforehand. Um, but what I've also noticed is that consuming fuel during, um, if the effort is longer really helps, um, kind of balance those energy and hunger levels throughout the day. So that was another thing that I didn't really realize was a thing was eating (laughs) during training for the longest time. Um, and to implement that now has made such a difference in how you feel during the run and how you recover and feel after for sure. That's an interesting way to kind of go about it. Cause I was thinking the same thing. My signals are definitely, I get like headaches, like it's mm. not fog. It is just like straight up, like a headache if I didn't have caffeine and then yeah. like tracking hunger is an interesting way to kind of go about it. Like eating what you might typically eat post-workout and then how many minutes or hours until you kind of start feeling that, that again. And, and then like, is, is there an appropriate window? It's like, Oh, I typically don't feel hungry for four hours and today I feel hungry in like two and a half. So I'll eat again. Um, so, so that's a good one too, is like, how, how hungry are you? <laughs> Which is. Yeah. And I would also say I've noticed, um, if I, if I really screwed up and like, sometimes I've gotten, um, just caught up in the day. I, I do have a pretty busy schedule. Um, so, uh, like on weekends, sometimes typically I'll have a long run and then, um, either go coach a soccer game or, and, or tutor 
And I've had days where I'll finish the long run, I'll eat something and then go off to the game and then tutor. And then I'm not getting home until like seven and I haven't eaten since like noon. And (laughs) that is not good on a day where you run like 15 to 20 miles. Um, And so I make a point of, yes, having a larger dinner, just even though the within day deficits are not good, you still want to replenish those calories. But um, I will notice like almost like a crippling fatigue, you know, where you just like, don't want to get up to even make food Mm. or like lightheadedness is a really big one that, um, I think people should pay attention to. Like if you're getting lightheaded, um, after like kind of accompanied with a little bit of hunger or anything like that, that's probably a big sign that your, your body needs food. That, that to me is when I know like, okay, I need to eat something and eat it now. Um, and fortunately I don't let that happen often, but if that is the case, I think that's a good clue. And then it goes away. And if it goes away, it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. That was the problem. <laughs> that exactly. headache was a <laughs> hunger induced headache. It's gone now. So, so, and it's like, it's hard to, to take those steps when w- trying to eat more because it is a guessing game at first, right? Like if you're just trying to listen to these signals and it's like, okay, maybe this lightheaded is because I'm hungry or maybe it's because I'm getting sick or something, whatever it could be. So like, taking those steps to eat more is can kind of be a barrier itself. Right. And eating. And for me, my, my personal, like I have a huge appetite. Like for me, it's never about not eating enough. It's just like keeping it in under wraps, (laughs) like (laughs) chilling out. I can empathize. Yeah. (laughs) So, but a lot of people aren't like that. You know, it's a lot of times, it's hard for people to eat more either if it's appetite or if it's schedule, like how you just kind of laid out where it's like, I'm just running around. I don't have time to prep food. I have, I have kids. Like I like now they're at home I'm working from home and I don't have time to prep the food, enough food for me to eat. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. there's a matter of the mindset of trusting that it is going to be helpful. Um, because if they eat more and it doesn't work in the way that we're talking about it working, it's like, it's this tough spot to be in. So how, how would you encourage someone to eat more? <laughs> so the, um, there, I, I have two answers to this question, kind of based on the two scenarios you laid out. Um, the one where someone is just super busy and kind of has trouble making the time to eat more. Um, the simple answer there is to prioritize more calorically dense foods. Mm. So, um, and there are a lot of really yummy calorically dense foods, so that shouldn't be too bad. So like, if you're someone who typically eats peanut butter on toast for breakfast, just load it with a little more peanut butter, maybe have another slice of toast. Um, that can add a significant amount of calories in very little time and with very little effort. And then packing like calorically dense snacks. Um, you're probably going to be eating more fat if that's the case, because fat is the most calorically dense um, macronutrient, but mm. um, perfect bars come to mind. So they're like a pretty small bar that pack, like, I think 350 calories. Um, they're delicious. They're like a bar of peanut butter, pretty much. Um, something like that is so easy. If you grab it from the store and then put it in your bag and you're going on with your day, like you can eat that pretty quick as opposed to like an apple is less than a third of the calories and it takes longer to eat. And, um, it actually might make you fuller depending on how you react to like the fiber in that. So, yeah. Yeah. So, um, just really prioritizing those, um, calorically dense foods. And maybe it's not a matter of adding more, um, eating time throughout the day. It's a matter of just like upping your portions when you do eat, um, which can be easier for some people as opposed to like planning for more snack times, just like eat more when you do eat and try that out. Um, 
then in the scenario where you said trusting that eating more is going to be useful, um, I found myself in kind of that scenario for a while. Um, and basically it was when I was like trying to normalize my hormones and get healthier. Um, it was a lot of like trying to believe that eating more would help me regulate things. And that didn't happen for, um, a few years. Like it took a long time to like numerically and scientifically speaking, I was eating more than enough to be like getting a healthy cycle and like fuel my training. But because of the, the deficit I had put my body in and just like the stress I put it under, it took a really long time and uh, like a pretty significant amount of weight gain too to fix everything. And that's really hard to like be patient through because I would be, um, like gaining weight from eating more and still things weren't getting back on track and all science points to the idea that yes, they will, but it's a matter of when. So, um, I would just say for anyone who's like trying to figure out if it's going to be beneficial for them, um, First of all, if you're a female and you're not getting your cycle, it probably will be beneficial for you. So um, it's a matter of just putting in those extra calories and maybe dialing back training a bit or tailoring it to um, like your specific season, just being more cognizant of like how you're expending energy. Um, And then just seeing kind of what your body does with it. Um, But yeah, it's, it's really about patience a lot of the time, to be honest, which is tough. Yeah. Wow. That's tough. I like just laying out that example that you gave, that must've been really hard. That must've been really hard to, to kind of yeah. go, go through that. How, how, how did you it, go ahead? I, I was going to ask how, how are you able, cause I'm thinking of myself and like a younger me and I don't have the exact same, you know, whatever. If I was faced with something, a specific example like that, it's like, if you need to eat more, but you'll, you might gain weight and there takes this, there's this healing time that you need, but long-term it's going to be helpful. But in the short term, it, it might be frustrating and uh, probably make you angry. <laughs> I would probably <laughs> say, no, I'm not doing it. I'm going to stay right yeah. here and I'm going to be this weight. And this is, this, and that's <laughs> that. And I could imagine as things were, changing and not necessarily, uh, like healing in the way that you, in, at, at the speed that you were hoping, like it had been really frustrating. Like, how did you keep that in mind? Definitely. Um, so it was an interesting time for sure. Um, so I basically, I did what you said for a long time. I kind of was like in denial and, um, was like, you know what? It's fine. My doctor says it's fine. Um, I will just like go on with being hungry all day, but being the weight I quote unquote want to be. Um, and I'm probably I'll, I'll be okay. And it'll just fix itself when I don't compete anymore, which who knows when. Um, but after a while there was, um, I think there were more and more athletes that I looked up to, or just followed on social media, um, who came out on the topic and, um, just more content was being put out there. And it kind of just opened my eyes to the fact that I was doing like long-term damage to my body. So, um, fortunately for me, like when I would go for checkups, they checked bone density. Um, I, I think the last time I was in like high end of normal. So like that wasn't, uh, a, um, like a red flag for me, but for a lot of people, who have that issue, um, bone density is going to be one of the first things to suffer. And obviously that's not ideal because, um, when you're an athlete, 
you take a lot of impact in almost anything you do. So you want your bones to be strong and you don't want to get injured. So, um, but I kind of just owned up to the fact that like, I wasn't going to be my best self performance wise if I wasn't like having healthy hormones and like having a healthy relationship with food and like feeling good throughout the day. <laughs> Cause if you're not feeling good throughout the day, how could you be feeling your best in training? Um, so eventually I just got kind of tired of, um, feeling like something was wrong with me, which it kind of was. And, um, kind of just gave in knowing, hoping that, um, performance wise, there was something better on the other side. So, um, the process of like really giving into that was probably like, I think it was about a year and a half and it kind of happened right before I kind of started like really investing in fixing things right before COVID and, um, COVID kind of hit at an opportune time for me. And obviously it's a terrible thing. It's a horrible pandemic. I'm not saying Disclaimer, that I'm we get it. grateful. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, but in terms of like timing for me, it really allowed me to take that break from racing that I think I needed because otherwise it would have been so psychologically hard to um, gain. I, I gained quite a bit of weight. Like I, I have a large frame. I'm 5'11". So um, like it'll fluctuate, but like upwards of 30 pounds, like that's a lot. Um, especially coming from someone who was like, so, um, just hyper-focused on a certain weight that I wanted to be for so many years. Um, now to, to add to the level of complexity here, there's, there's an idea of like an overshoot weight where, um, any like female athlete who's looking to get their period back, they might have to like gain more than what their body would level out at, um, just because they've been in that, that low like deficit state for so long. So to kind of like give your body the insurance that it needs to like start things back up again, yeah. you'll have to go higher. So for me, it was like a pretty big swing. Um, and then, um, it, that was like very, very difficult. Um, definitely, uh, it helped that there was no racing because otherwise I probably would have been extremely insecure and, um, not feeling good about myself. Um, which I mean, that's just a mental part of it, um, that I'm still working on. But, um, yeah, it was a lot about just like, okay, give my body the chance that it needs to set things back on track and then go from there. And, um, it was just, I kind of just had to bite the bullet <laughs> and do it. And it, it was hard. Um, and then fortunately I didn't have to back off training too much. Um, there are people who really need to lay off the intensity, lay off the volume. Um, but I think, uh, the fact that I have a large appetite, I was able to just up what I ate a lot more and I like handled that well, so I could still sustain training. And then eventually, um, just after, after that long period of time and like a lot of weight gain, it did come back. Um, and after that it was like, okay, well now we have to be patient again because you don't want to just like screw everything up and go back in the other direction. So let it level out. Um, at this time I was really just focusing on eating whenever I was hungry, eating like whatever I wanted. And I mean like ice cream every night, <laughs> like things like that, just to like get in the calories and like give my body a break from stressing over food. Um, and then when it seemed to, when my cycle seemed to be consistent again was when I started working with my dietitian on tailoring things a little bit more towards performance and feeling good again, because at this point, yes, I felt good about the fact that like hormonally I was functioning better, but performance wise, like I wasn't feeling my best self. I wasn't really, my, my, um, focus wasn't on 
like all the nutrients, all the clean food. It was just like all the calories and just like, just do that for a while. So, um, now the focus has shifted a little bit to, um, tailoring nutrition a little bit more towards, um, what is going to make me feel my best while also giving me adequate fuel. And by feel my best, I mean like in my training. So, um, yes, ice cream can make you feel good, but like, um, I've noticed for me, like, that's like one of my favorite foods, but if I do eat it every day, like I did, I do tend to feel kind of sluggish. Um, Mm. and the sugar might not be as beneficial for me as something like Greek yogurt with protein at night, like something like that. So making those shifts over time and tailoring nutrition to performance again, after kind of resetting things by just like letting all hell break loose pretty much. And just like, like kind of just start back from ground zero. So that was an interesting process for sure. Yeah. It's like you said, bite the bullet that you really did have to take a leap Yeah, and doing it. Like you said, like having COVID there and having no races, that's nice. But like one thing that I've been thinking about and talking about a lot with COVID is like, it just gave us, it gave me a better scope of time, right. And how time passes and races pass and things and like not that much Mm -hmm. changes. Right. And things will kind of progress along the way. So like there's, it's going to be okay to miss things and have things and take time to like allow the change that needs to happen to happen. But from, if you were to give someone that was maybe in in your place years ago, kind of that nudge or advice to, to, to take this leap, this kind of scary leap, how would you help coax somebody to do that because like you mentioned like a lot of people speaking out about it sure like but it's still a decision you got to kind of make on your own but like Mm -hmm. how could you get somebody there you think that that's a good question and i thought about that a lot and i don't think my answer would have been honest until very recently um because i was always holding on to the hope that performance wise i could feel better than i did at a much lighter weight um like not no functioning hormones anything like that versus at a higher weight, but like feeling healthy and like just body wise, everything was going well. So, um, uh, there was a point in time where like I had gotten my cycle back, but like things still weren't clicking. Like I wasn't feeling good. And I was like, great. Did I just do all this work to like, not like perform better than I did. Um, but once I, um, kind of got the training, uh, part of it, nailed down, um, from like a, like an intensity standpoint, a, like just what's too much, what's too little, that kind of thing. And gave my body a good chunk of time to like adjust to everything, um, with prioritizing the proper nutrition. Uh, it does have me feeling stronger than I have before. Like, so just numerically to give you an example, um, uh, it's just eye-opening to me that a few years ago, um, I was probably a good, like 15 to 20 pounds lighter, um, not getting a cycle. And I, I trained by heart rate. So, um, I would run at like 160 beats per minute. I have a high, high heart rate. So 160 beats per minute as like a cap on like easier or more endurance runs. And, um, my pace then is slower than it is now at that heart rate with 15 to 20 pounds on me at altitude. I was at sea level before I'm at 5,000 to 8,000 feet now. So it's, it's kind of coming together in terms of letting the nutrition, um, kind of 
heal the body from the inside, let things take its course and then nail down the proper training and not just like slam your body into the ground with all this high intensity stuff. So I would just tell someone (laughs) that you, it really is patience and, um, really making sure you nail all the components. Um, not just like kind of hoping things will work out, like actively seeking what makes the most sense and like fitting all those pieces of the puzzle together. And the, the anecdote of just like weighing more and running faster I think it speak volumes to athletes. It's like, listen, I know you think you need to look this way or, or, or be this specific weight. I did too, but like, I'm feel better now and running faster. So like, whatever. Cause if it's yeah. just about, if it's just about like, like I said before, if it's just about the healing or pushing back the consequences, people will probably ignore that, but mm-hmm. that, that proof and that's awesome. So I'm, I'm really, I'm relieved to hear that for you. That's great. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no, I think it was, um, we talked about Montana this past weekend. I think that being the first race back, um, was kind of like validation just because of knowing how I felt comparing to how I had felt the last time I ran a Spartan race. Um, it had been over a year and a half. So before I had quote unquote fixed things, you know, so, and I could just compare like how my running felt, I felt stronger, more consistent on Hills. And like, even my pull-up strength now is better than it was then when I was lighter then. So like, I'm just stronger and faster overall, just by prioritizing, like having a coach who just programs, um, specifically to me and like, you know, knows just how to periodize and, um, make training make sense. Um, and then working with the dietitian I've worked with for a little over a year and just really kind of doing a, a 180 on a lot of things. Um, but yeah, it's, it's cool. That's great. And, and, you know, going through this process, there's definitely the, those consequences that we kind of mentioned a couple of times of, of the hormonal, uh, shifts that could potentially happen when you might be experiencing the red S or, or whatever it is that, um, just low energy availability, like long-term there could definitely be consequences with that. But a lot of that for the female athlete is because of the fluctuation of those hormones. And that kind of ties in with how to train around your menstrual cycle as well, because there's definitely information out there and ways that women will absorb specific type of training and actually foods, I believe, depending on mm-hmm. the hormones that are available. Cause they, there's crazy wild swings that happen throughout the cycle. So there is some theory behind how to train around, like around your cycle, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that my dietitian actually introduced me to. Um, and, um, something, uh, who my current coach Ian Hosick has been implementing and it's been really cool to kind of try it out and see how it works. But the, the research, um, again, minimal research, but, um, promising research to suggest that, um, in, well, the cycles kind of split up into multiple phases, um, to make it simple. It's like first half, second half, first half is, um, the follicular phase. And then second half is the luteal phase. Um, a cycle starts when you get your period and then, um, it, it lasts a different amount of time depending on the person. But, um, phase one is the period and phase four is the other one that you really want to like look out for is like the PMS phase. Um, in that first half of the cycle where, um, you have your period and then like, um, in the days following that, like the first one to two weeks of the cycle, um, your body is 
better at utilizing carbohydrates. So um, things like uh, when you're fueling, you can kind of consume carbohydrates well, you can consume carbohydrates at any time. Like there's no rules around this, but in terms of what your body's doing with it, um, it's, it's easier. It's more, how am I trying to say this? It more easily utilizes the carbs you, um, you give it throughout the day. There's not like a certain time where carbs are more ideal. Like usually you want to surround your workout with carbs pre and post. Um, but throughout the day, you also want to be consuming carbs in the second half of the cycle, especially in the PMS phase leading up to the period, um, your body is a female's body is not as good at that. So, um, tailoring your nutrition to have most of your daily carbs centered around the pre-workout, the intra-workout even, because, um, if you're not utilizing carbs as well during your workout, you're going to need more fuel coming in because you just have, you have less to draw from. Um, and then afterwards, if you consume your carbs more around, um, your workout during that time and kind of prioritize, um, uh, you know, not, not low carb meals, but just like, uh, you can balance it out a little more where you're not like heavy on the carbs at night or anything like that. Cause your body's not utilizing it as well during mm-hmm. that time. So if you, if you're looking from a performance standpoint, from like a, um, if, if you're weight conscious, it depends on the person, but, um, the, the fuel you're giving your body at certain times throughout the day, depending on where you are in your cycle makes a difference. Um, the, the main thing being like the PMS phase, uh, you're going to need more intra workout fuel, um, because your body can't draw from your glycogen, glycogen stores as well. Um, and your, um, yeah, you're just, you're not able to draw from that source of energy pretty much. And I think the way that it can kind of even curate your training around this is if you're in those early phases where you're utilizing carbohydrates a little bit more readily available, uh, just doing high output work, right? Like those are the things where you'll be doing, you know, intervals or threshold intervals where it's going to be highly glycolytic and the other end working more in that slower type of range. I don't quite know how well that would work um, in terms of performance, just because like, yeah, it seems like a hard way to, to periodize. And I must say there is an app for, that will kind of tell you this is called fit fit R. Yeah. Is, uh, fit, I, I call it fitter. I'm not sure fitter. how it's pronounced, but, but I, I said, just, yeah, F I T R. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, um, I use that, um, just to like track things and give me an estimate of where I'll be on certain days. Um, but yeah, training wise, um, if you split it into that first half, second half, again, um, the first half where you, um, have your period. And then in like the week or so after that, um, performance is typically going to be better. Um, you want to look to do your higher intensity training, your coordination is better. Um, your risk of injury is lower. So, um, in terms of training, that would definitely be like a harder little mini block of time. And then the second half of the cycle, especially that last quarter, the PMS phase, um, the increase, the, the risk of injury is increased. Um, the, usually you're going to feel sluggish at least for part of it. Um, and, uh, heart, uh, heart rate is elevated or could be elevated. You're, you could be experiencing like actual, like cramping symptoms that a lot of people say they get or like back pain, anything like that. Um, so that's the point in time where you might want to schedule that down week in training, which is typically how I've been doing it with Ian. We've been kind of, uh, building, building, building for two to three weeks. 
And then every four weeks or so is that deload week where we just taper things off a little bit, back off the intensity a tad while still keeping, you don't want to just like botch intensity altogether, but just giving your body that little bit of a dip for a break while it's at its kind of lowest point in the month. And it's, it's been, it's been cool. I I've never had a training program that's been periodized like that. I've never really had deload weeks in general. And, um, I will say that usually when they come around, um, I'm feeling ready for it because there are days where you just feel like crud and it's just, it's helpful. And yeah, so I guess that would kind of fall under, I think they call it polarized training, which would be kind of those mm. four week blocks, which is, and if it can fit that way and it works, that would be ideal, but just kind of getting it started off on the right and ha- but having information available and like knowing where you are, that that's where the fitter app is, is pretty helpful. And it's it, totally. it, it more like educational. It's a little underwhelming in terms of user experience. Yes. I, 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 I brought it on. Uh, to kind of put my athletes in there so I could kind of look at it and see where everybody was and kind of put their their uh, their training accordingly. But there is something with birth control that changes this, right? Because that, that yeah. changes the fluctuation of the hormones that uh, throughout the cycle and kind of makes it a little bit more of consistent dosages all the way through. So kind of, so, so correct me if I'm wrong, but what we just kind of spoke about is that not necessarily the case if you're on birth control? Yeah. So that's something um, like based on the individual and what form of birth control they might be taking. Um, from my understanding, there are different effects depending on the certain medication. So, but you're right in that um, it usually will even out that hormone fluctuation in a way that changes how you might approach training around your menstrual cycle. If you, um, if you weren't on birth control, say, so Um yeah, that's, that's a matter of kind of figuring out how your specific birth control that you might be on works. And then, um, like seeing more feeling out your body also, like, because on birth control, technically you're getting like a fake period. So, um, it, it's interesting to kind of try and apply these tactics in that case, because, um, from what I, anyone I've talked to, um, like obviously, um, different people take different things they do, or they don't take birth control, but, um, they'll find like different effects in their cycle from one pill versus a different one. So like Mm. some people get it more frequently or like twice a month on some birth control, some people get it less. So yeah, it definitely changes things in terms of how you're going to apply these, um, principles, but I guess what wouldn't change is adequate fueling is obviously important. Um, and then, um, if I think it would become more of a listening to your body in terms of like, um, if you are feeling cruddy and you think you're going to be expecting like your period in the next few days, you're probably in that PMS phase. It's probably a good idea to dial it back a bit. Um, but I think it would entail a little more specific diving into like how that specific birth control might be playing with things. Cause yeah, yeah, it's, it's totally different. It does have a weird effect on hormones in general. No, it's just, it's. And that's another thing. It's that it just seems like it's just the norm, right? Yeah. So actually I was told that to fix my issues, I should just go on birth control for like years. Um, because that just would keeps just everything regulated. Me, yeah. But, um, that's kind of a bandaid. Um, it's not fixing the problem. Uh, it's addressing the symptoms, but not the actual issues. If, if you're taking it to get a period when you're not getting a period because it's fake anyway. So, um, 
more hmm. and more is coming out on how that's really not going to be the way you want to go. If, if your body can't do it itself, then something's up. Um, and then the birth control medication isn't going to just, you know, make everything okay. Ugh, that like hurts my heart that like you're told that it's like, well, I know if you just want a period, no problem. Yeah, like, exactly. Like, well, exactly. that's not necessarily what I, what I was going after, but yeah, totally. And so you're definitely in the middle of this journey, maybe toward the tail end, like a lot of things are, 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 are happening and moving. So you've been going through uh, probably a lot of different conversations and trying and exploring some different areas. So when, when you were, or just talking to any of the coaches who might be listening or any athletes who might find themselves in a similar spot to you would be, you are, or you were, how would you encourage either side to, to start a conversation going with this and like where, and in terms of like comfort level, or like what are some things you feel like people might not want to talk about or like how to kind of get the conversation going? Yeah. Um, that, that's a good one because, um, obviously I'm pretty open about it now, but it's definitely taken a while for me to be comfortable talking about it. Um, but what motivated me to become more comfortable was the fact that, um, I just wish others had been more comfortable so I could have learned more. Um, cause I really knew nothing like going into my like situation with red S like amenorrhea. Um, I didn't know enough and I really wished there were other people that I could have related to or like learned from. So that's kind of why I decided to like start sharing more about it on social media, like come on this podcast with you, things like that, because I think um, it is something that more female athletes need to know about um, in terms of like opening up that conversation. Um, I think it's really important to have a coach that you're comfortable talking about this with. If you're not comfortable um like if you find yourself hesitating to talk to your coach about this, I would ask yourself about your relationship with your coach in general. I get a new coach. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because, um, it's just, it's science first of all. So, um, I'll use Ian as an example, cause he is my coach. Um, he is uh, a self-proclaimed nerd. He's told me this a mad wizard because he, he knows his stuff. Yeah. So, and he, um, he actually raised the question to me when I first started working with him, uh, he said that there is some science around this. Would this be something you'd be open to? And that's when I said to him, actually, yes, because this is what my dietitian recommends. So then we all hopped on a call together and mm. kind of chatted about how everything would work. So um, if you have a coach like that, it makes it easy, right? So, um, cause it's just, you come at it from a scientific standpoint and like, yeah, this is what happens in females. And that's kind of, you can't really do anything about it versus like males. It's just like a difference in biological um, like function. So, um, that I'm fortunate for. Um, but yeah, if you're hesitating to talk about it, I would definitely say that that's a sign that maybe the relationship you have with your coach isn't the best. Like what, ask yourself why you're uncomfortable with it, because if you're uncomfortable, um, talking it over with your coach because of the person they are, then that's probably a, a clue that maybe they aren't taking the best approach or they don't make you feel, um, comfortable enough to do these things. But if you're uncomfortable, just because it's kind of like a taboo topic, I would maybe reframe it and just say like, it's science. Like it, it's kind of a matter of fact thing that happens. Um, like every time I say it on this podcast, I'd be like, period. Like it feels weird to like, say, I don't know why it's just like a thing that people don't like to say or talk about, <laughs> Yeah. but then every time I'm just like, 
gosh, it, it's, a, it's like, a, it's a function. It happens. Like you just, you have to address it because it's so important and it really does have a big effect on so many things when it comes to endurance training or training in general. So, yeah. And this, yeah. Like if you, cause there are definitely our coaches and, you know, we we're all growing and learning and like, you're going to try to take people and put them into whatever, uh, box or formula or whatever they feel like it has worked with people in the past. And this is hard. This is like grasping this concept. Like I said in the beginning, like I've tried and like j- trying to learn it throughout, but it's like, it's not as simple as mm. you might think it would be. And everyone's going to be so different with that. And everyone's going to be in a different part of the part of their journey, but at least starting it and helping yourself get the education and then maybe pushing the, the, the coaches on their end to also kind of get that education or at least open their mind to it. Couldn't hurt. Yeah. And I think there's a baseline too, like the expectation that every coach should be on top of tailoring each athlete's training to their cycle every month, every, every waking hour of the day, like that's like super high level stuff. And, um, I think the baseline should be opening the conversation about, um, like hormonal health with athletes in general, just if anything, like, um, bare minimum should be checking in with any female athlete you have, like, are you getting your cycle? And then go from there. Like if they are great, that's, that's probably means things are working pretty well. And if they aren't, then there are things to address for sure. And I think if that is the starter, then that's good because there are a lot of coaches who don't really even check in on that. And then athletes just go, this is what happened to me that I just went for a long time without anyone really asking me. And I didn't really want to talk about it. So I pretended nothing was wrong. Um, so yeah, it's not a matter of just like going full into like the super specific and, um, like crazy convoluted, uh, idea of like tailoring it to every phase, but, um, more a matter of just like making sure the athlete is healthy overall. And one really big indicator for a female is getting their cycle. Yeah, that's, that's really good, strong advice. And I'm going to take that into my own practice for sure. And because oh, cool. like typically when it's about when, I, when I'm thinking about hormone function, I, I, I like to address this stuff on the nutrition end of things, just making sure like the available energy and the, what they're getting in. So if uh, you are a female athlete that I coach who's listening right now, I'm going to ask you about your cycle. So there we go. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. Love it. Um, cool. Okay. Well, this is super fun. I mean, thank you for being so open. This is really awesome information. I, I learned a ton in this. I think that it's going to be really helpful to anybody who is listening because it's, it's, it's obviously something that half the population is, is needing to hear and, and is, is handling in their training every day. So getting that conversation out there and getting everyone, I think is really, really helpful. So I appreciate you coming on and sharing. Um, so how was oh, that I'm race? I'm so glad. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm oh, sorry. I cut you oh, off. <laughs> yeah. uh, Montana was awesome. No, that's okay. I think there was a little bit of a, a delay. Yeah. I was just going to say that. Um, I'm glad you found it interesting. And um, I am happy. Like you were, interested in talking about it. Cause, uh, yeah, I think there's a lack of conversation about it right now. It's getting better for sure. But, um, the more that I can do to help anyone out, um, the better. Cause like, obviously I would have wanted kind of that guidance and that help, um, when I needed it. So, um, yeah, no, this was awesome. But, um, Montana was amazing. Definitely one of my top venues I'd say now. Um, I ended up doing the, uh, beast super end sprint, uh, this past weekend, which, uh, was kind of like in the back of my mind, but I wasn't sure how it was going to go. Um, but 
in the beast, I felt strong. Uh, I failed stairway to Sparta, which is in the beast. It is no joke. So it's um, now. Yeah. Yeah. That are like seven feet high to start and they're staggered. So it's not like you can grab two level like this. You have to like, um, go from one up to the next. And my, like the hills were so big that like my two hands couldn't fit on one. So (laughs) I was like trying to like jump up and reach. I couldn't get that, but otherwise felt good. Um, came in seventh race, a lot of the race with like Faye Morgan, who's a good friend of mine. Um, she's just an awesome person and athlete and, um, was blown away by Casey Monroe's performance. She crushed it. Um, local Montana, uh, person, but she's, she's amazing. She's a, uh, mom of her new son she has an older yeah. daughter too but yeah she's legit she's like, um, she's like just coming back she's racing really well <laughs> oh she's she is on yeah and yeah. um i mean she crushed the super and sprint too mm-hmm. um and yeah went back out the second day uh feeling good in the super it was a little wetter we had um a little bit of rain in the morning um kind of scattered throughout so i slipped off beater because it was a little wet and i hesitated and then um I was fried from Olympus the first day where I was on my knees and I like held myself up. So I was happy about that because I struggle with that usually. But when I tried it for the super, I was like, nope, not happening. So, um, failed that came in seventh again. Um, and then sprint, I was just like, well, I'm here. I might as well go for it because when am I going to do a trifecta weekend again? And I felt fine. Um, and that ended up probably being my strongest race. Um, came in fifth clean race and, uh, yeah, I was just, it was a really, it was kind of an emotional weekend for me because just with everything that we had talked about just now that I like went through and kind of doubting whether I did the right thing performance wise, just to feel that good throughout those races. And like, um, just to have that, that hope and encouragement that like things are on the right track, um, was really, really cool. So it it made it a really special weekend for sure. So you got the full trifecta out of the way. Did you get like the puzzle piece as well? Stick them all in there. I got your little mantle. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, I know they make it so like elaborate now. I totally forgot to get like the, the trifecta by one metal, but I could probably pick it up the next one. Yeah, that's they'll, okay. they'll, they'll sell them. Well, that's awesome. I'm glad that <laughs> you're feeling good and you're back out there. And yeah, I can't imagine like, I still haven't hit a race yet. So what was, mm. the, what was the best part about being back? Tell me everything. Oh, okay. So it, it was weird. Cause it did feel like quote unquote back to normal, um, mm. which was like, so refreshing after, um, a year and a half of not seeing all these people. Um, like I mentioned Faye Morgan, we ended up staying together with one of her friends and, um, it was just so great to be back spending time with her. And like, it just felt like nothing had changed in that year and a half. And, um, you know, to not see one of your best friends for that long really sucks. So that was amazing just to like get to see everyone back out on the course. There were so many people that, um, just the first initial reactions when you walk into the venue and they're like, Oh my gosh, it's you like (laughs) that kind of thing. Um, that was just great. And then, uh, Spartan did a really good job of like spacing people out at the start, making things feel, um, pretty clean, pretty safe, um, without compromising the actual race experience. I thought they did, um, awesome with, with that, um, in my honest opinion. Um, and I think busting the rust was really a relief because, uh, as someone who gets very nervous for most races, um, I was definitely anxious about how I would feel getting back into things. Um, but it did kind of just come back as soon as that, as soon as the gun went off, you know, um, you just get into that mode and, 
I think the, the elation of just being back out there again helped a lot. Um, and you worry that you're not going to be able to push as hard or like you totally forgot how to do obstacles. But, um, I found that that wasn't the case, which was really nice because it just felt like, it felt like that year and a half was just a blip in time. So that, that was really cool. That's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) I was watching the course look great. It looked hard that like a couple of dollars in there, like they, they, they didn't hold back on the obstacles for this one. It was like legit. Yeah. It was interesting. They kind of made it like it in, I almost, um, felt like it was a running race and then almost like it was like a half trail, half marathon. And then they decided to put like two bunches of obstacles in and that's yeah. pretty much it with some walls everywhere else. So it was interesting in that way. Cause you could get into a rhythm on the run. Um, Montana was more rolly. It wasn't like race to sustain, sustain climbs, a few steep ones, but then you had the steep downs and you weren't really climbing for more than a few minutes at a time. Um, so running wise, that was fun because it broke everything up. But then they really did stick you with some gauntlets that were tricky. So um, within the span of 200 meters, we had um, Helix into Z-Wall into Olympus um, for the beast. So that was one where I was a little nervous about that going in. Those are all like holding your body up, kind of like like the rock climbing positions. Um, That was interesting. And then they stuck you with Twister into A-Frame Cargo into Multi-Rig. So um, that's another grip intensive. They're real close together too, right? At least for the super. Right? Oh yeah. That, they yeah. Were like all so for the, back. for the beast and super, they were back to back to back yeah. um, those sequences. So that was really interesting and um, <laughs> kind of a brutal way to like get us back into things because we're all coming to this race. Like, Oh shoot, is my grip going to hold up? Like, do I know how to do these things? And now okay. we're just going to do them back to back to back. Um, luckily the weather held out. So that, that made it better. If it was like a slop fest, I'm sure it would have been much messier. I probably would have failed a lot more. Um, but since it was dry, um, I was happy to see that my grip strength held up for the most part. So that, that was cool too. What do you got? What do you got next? Are you going to be doing some high rocks stuff? Yeah. So, um, I, uh, I don't know about Decafit coming up. I did do the, like the Decamile, um, at, um, fit, Fokker fit F O C R, um, in, um, Colorado here by me. Um, that was, that was super fun, really hard. Um, definitely reminiscent of high rocks, just lighter weights and stuff. My next event, um, that I'm hoping to do is high rocks, Austin. Um, so coming up in a few weeks. Um, and yeah, I've been working with Ian to incorporate a little bit of high rock specific prep while still prioritizing. I think my main goals for this year, gear towards the Spartan side. And hmm. I, I tend to enjoy like the longer races. Um, so I, I like the beast, like the Tahoe beast is always one of my favorites, things like that. So, um, we've been trying to balance that priority with the high rocks. And uh, I'm excited to see now that, um, uh, I've been training at altitude and things have been feeling pretty good. I'm excited to see what that means for a high rocks event. Cause they're, they're a blast and also extremely hard. <laughs> so yeah, I'm gonna do my first high rocks in Orlando. Mm. That's the like two or three weeks later, right? Like the yeah. Austin yeah, one's May twenty second. Yeah, it's like um in two and a half two weeks. weeks. Yeah, and then yours is like two weeks after that. I think. Yeah, yeah. Nice. I'm actually gonna go hit the the Deca Fit in Florida next weekend. Ooh, the the West Palm Beach thing. Yeah, yeah. That so, looks fun. So I'm going fully vaccinated. So I'm going to Florida. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's 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 the place awesome. To go. Yeah. So I'm excited about that. Um, well, cool, Callie. Where can people find you on social if they want to reach out? Yeah. So um, I am primarily on Instagram. My handle is C So it's 
C and then S C H W E I K. That's the first half of my last name because my last name's ridiculous. But um, <laughs> and then Facebook is just my name, Callie Schweikart. Um, and I mentioned that I work with um, my dietitian. I didn't say her name, Lindsay, but um, if anyone's curious about that, um, she's amazing, and I'd be happy to put you in touch with her. Um, just because she's helped me more than I could express. So um, yeah, I'm happy to answer any questions about that. Um, but yeah, those Instagram is probably the best way to to reach me. That's where I'm most active at least. Cool. I'll make sure to link to it to make it easy on the show notes. But awesome. again, I appreciate you taking time. I'm just going to hit end record and we'll just stay right here. Yeah. But appreciate you taking time and it was great chatting with you. Oh yeah. Thanks Rich. Thanks for having me on. All right. So we're going to try something a little bit different here where I'm going to be talking about a specific topic where about anything when it comes to endurance training and uh, some different just ways to implement that and just like small quick takeaways for you the athlete and just ways to kind of drill some things home and a lot of ways just to kind of talk about some of the things that I've been thinking about recently and most recently I've gotten a little bit more into like investing and always looked at the the market as something that was interesting to me and something that I did want to eventually dabble into but one, but I've just been like slow to kind of learn it and to really kind of dive into it. Um, this is a bunch of several. There's probably a ton of reasons why I haven't gotten into it so far. But that is like the main thing. Just haven't really put in the real time to quite understand completely what what I'm doing there. But uh, a buddy of mine recently, he he just like hit me up and was like, "Listen, I, I download this wallet, this virtual wallet. I'm going to send you something." So. He sent over this cryptocurrency, something I've never heard of, and I've started looking into all these different crypto coins, and just it's so vast, and it's kind of a strange thing. It, the way I'm looking at it now is that it, it seems like it's just a big fight to see who's going to come out on top as a new type of currency in the world, and so Bitcoin had the jump start on this. It kind of uh, push things forward, and it, there's this whole secure way of of you know backtracking everything, and and with the the blockchain, it makes things really secure, and it seems like it's a good viable way to create a different type of currency. But the problem is, is that there's no barrier for anyone just to make stuff up, and people just kind of like are making it up. It's like, oh yeah, this is now a a coin that that is that is worth nothing and it's not backed by anything but the value is all about how much the market determines its worth so that's why you see these massive fluctuations in these coins is that it's kind of people kind of trying to make short-term investments to make a quick buck so you can do this with a, a, a myriad of different coins and, and these coins keep getting created as a way to kind of compete with Bitcoin or, or try to be that next alternative to currency, but really it just seems like it's a bunch of people just trying to make a, a quick dollar uh, because these, these coins, they don't really, they don't really mean anything. They don't really do anything. And if they are, do start to become more valuable in, in terms of what they uh, present to the world outside of just like a potential like different type of currency for the dollar, then great. But the coins are not necessarily doing that right now. So it's kind of like if there was going to be a new track and field event and 
we just kind of voted on it and and then it just kind of went out into the market it's like hey let's decide what we want the next track and field distance to be if you want it to be the 2000 then invest money into the 2000 meter run and whatever the best one is is that's what we'll have and that's kind of where we are right now is we're almost kind of like voting with our dollars trying to figure that out and people are exploiting it and making money so that's kind of where we are now so it, and with this coin that my buddy gave me, it just shot up. Like in the first couple of days, it went insane. It, I didn't have much. It wasn't much money in it to start. It, w- that it was gifted to me, but it had like went up like 300, 400% within like the first 18 hours of me having it. And it's since kind of settled back down and it's been in kind of a more uh, consistent level place, but it's still up like a lot, <laughs> which is great. And it's it, it, it took a lot just to not try to, to dump money more money into it, right? And just like try to really kind of push and be really bullish on something that I saw go up. But I don't know much about it. I don't know what it does. To me, it doesn't make sense that it's not gonna be like a nice long term, uh, sustainable way to continue to make money. It seems like a short money grab. And now I'm just gonna kind of wait it out and see. So the better bet is then to, you know, create different positions in different like investments and just diversify. It's a classic idea behind diversification. And listen, I'm not a market wizard anyway. I'm very novice. I really don't know much about this at all and have a long way to go and a lot to learn. But the idea behind diversification diversification, it is smart, right? Like if one thing goes all the way down, your money's not all tied up into this one thing and you can kind of incrementally grow depending on the positions in, in a lot of different things. And as an endurance athlete, this is really something that we can take within our own training. And there, there's oftentimes this narrative around running and endurance is that just like whatever you want to get better at, you need to do more of. So the main investment that we make is in running. And eventually it gets to a point where just the bandwidth and what we can do seems to diminish. Or we get, we get so in overhead and trying to do more that we can get kind of hurt or we can just kind of burn out. But for the most part, like this strategy of dumping all your resources into one specific, we'll call it a stock, just your stock of running, it works and it and it, it will show. If you if one year you run 35 miles per week for the entire year, the next year you run 50, you're probably going to be faster that next year. But there's a point where it just will continue to kind of diminish if you continuously dump all of your resources into one thing, you're not diversified in your training. And that's the thing with progress in general is that it's never going to be linear for a long time. It's never, you'll never see just continual growth on an upward trajectory. Things are going to kind of wane and kind of go back and forth. So when you're in one position of just being a runner, then you're not going to have the ability to 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 move and maneuver and to be more like nimble in your training. So when it comes to your training, you should kind of lean on this diversification as well. It's just as important as it is for your portfolio. And so what that means, it means adding different things. It's not just being a runner, not just being a cyclist, not just being a CrossFit athlete, but expanding outside of those things so that when you need to take on a new task, you know how to kind of do that. You know where it's going to fit. 
And as you slowly build in different types of things like strength training or cycling, if you're a runner or, or regular cross training or swimming or mobility, whatever it is, whatever takes time, whatever takes time from your day and is meant to help your training, that's all part of your bandwidth. And that's part of your diversification. That's part of your portfolio as a runner. So you don't need to go so deep into one specific thing. Eventually it will be helpful to be very specialized in one thing, but for the most part, for most of your training, you should expand things beyond just one thing. It'll make you a better athlete. It'll make you a, a more resilient person and it's going to help you expand because we can do as much training as we want as long as we can fit it into our day and learning how to fit it into your into our day is like the hardest part so if you can add little pieces here or there instead of just like 10 minutes of running on on each day and just add little pieces it'll it'll be able to kind of broaden things much easier and so if you were able to create some width in your training with strength training with cycling with whatever it is when it comes time to kind of turn back to specialize, you can take that time that you've created with this other piece and kind of dump your resources into what's going to matter the most, which could potentially be running. It depends on what what kind of events you have coming, and you can take the expanded amount that of time that you've created by diversifying your training, and then position it into a place that's going to really pay off for race day. So. As an endurance athlete, you're basically an investor in the market. You're an investor into your own self. And these small deposits that you're going to put in every day are what's going to create this long-term growth for you. But you need to be diversified in this plan. If you're single-minded, if you have one position that you take, things will eventually stall in that market the same way that it would if, if, things, go, and if things go down, if, things, if you get hurt and you're running and that's all you're doing, that's all you ever could do. Like then putting all, all of your eggs in that one basket is just going to be detrimental long-term. So you don't want to wait until that happens to create this diversification. You want to be proactive with that. So that's where I'll leave it today. If you need to add some stuff, add some stuff in there. Get on the bike, do some strength training, diversify that training. That's it. All right, cool. Well, if you like these type of little quips, let me know. If you have any questions or any topics that you want to touch on, hit me with an email, rich at reinforcedrunning.com. Instagram, reinforce underscore running underscore rich. So let me know. Looking for any type of feedback. If you want these things to keep rolling, we're going to do it for the next couple of weeks to see see how it goes and see what you guys are liking. Cool. All right. Well, we'll talk to you soon.